When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Shamai, hello and welcome to this podcast. I'm your host, Sam Cook. Over the next half an hour, you'll be hearing from some of this country's biggest stars. From where they got their big break, to struggles that they may have faced along the way. In this episode, we'll be putting actor Blake Harrison in the spotlight. Blake Harrison. Hello, how are you? Very good, mate. Very good. How are you? Yeah, not too bad. Whereabouts are you currently? I'm at home in like a little office that we have. Whereabouts in the world is that? Is that in London? Are you? Where, where, where yeah, are South you? South East London. Yeah, South East London. South East London. And of course, Blake, you are gearing up for the second season of World on Fire. Everyone seems to be buzzing about this. I remember the reaction to the first series and it was just overwhelming, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. It was lovely. It was... Um... You know, it's just been, it's so strange that it's been such a long period of time between series one and series two. Obviously, that's because of the uh, the pandemic. And uh, that meant that everything was was delayed way longer than everyone would have expected. And obviously, it's a, a very kind of international show with um, storylines set in Germany, France, Africa, Britain. It, so I, I think that obviously with the pandemic, there was uh, travel restrictions as well. So it just took longer to uh, to get going. But the response to uh, Series 1 was was brilliant. And um, hopefully we can get a similar thing for Series 2. Was it um, interesting for you to kind of get back into that character, having had that time away? Yeah, I mean, for, for me, what I like to do when it uh, comes to getting into characters is really kind of immerse myself in whatever they're immersed in and uh for for stan i I thought was just really important to get a feel for the for the time period and so that meant watching uh documentaries on world war ii but also i i found some really interesting um training videos that men of that era would have watched going into uh world war ii and i mean it's it's funny some of it looking at it from a kind of 2023 eyes you know the kind of stereotypes of these kind of what what americans would have called i suppose like infomercial type type vibes to it where you know you've got these black and white images of someone portraying a a german spy in you know like mainland britain and they're like Oh, look at this blighter here. Who's he? Naughty, naughty. And, and it's, but they're just genuine. This is what they watched. And it was all to do with uh, the, the weaponry that, that they would have used. And, and they would constantly use a, a phrase of like, you know, remember, shoot to kill. And it's like, once you get past the the voice and the kind of parodies that we have seen of that type of thing over the years, these men were being taught we under no uncertain terms shoot to kill wait for these people to get in range and these men were not um you know didn't choose to be 
soldiers as their career. You know, a lot a lot of them were teachers, postmen. Uh, you know, it could be anything, blacksmiths. So many different things that they were farmers, and and they were then going off to war and being told shoot to kill this person's your enemy. Yeah, when you look back on it with with kind of modern eyes, it is it's quite a lot for these young men to have taken on, especially given the ages that they were. A lot of them would have been in their late teens and early twenties. You know, a character like that must be a gift for you as an actor, though. Have you know getting into that mindset of somebody who was going into World War Two because very multi layered, very interesting, not one dimensional. Yeah, no, and that's the the beautiful thing with with Stan is um, he is. He shows a lot of emotional intelligence, actually, because not only can he do the kind of stereotypical kind of sergeant job of looking at the troops and who needs a bit of a kick up the and he can really give them a, 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 dress, a verbal dressing down. Um, but equally, when the morale is low, he is very in tune with that and he'll be the first one to crack a joke, lighten the mood and try and bring the men up to a level where you know, there's a bit more positivity around it and, and they can take on the next threat because that it was just the relentless threats that were in their lives, whether that be in mainland Europe and, and Series 1, Dunkirk, and now in North Africa for Series 2, where we've got not just fighting with the Italians and then later when, when General Rommel comes in for the, for the German troops and, you know, starts decimating a lot of the, the British forces, but equally the elements... You know, you, you, you're talking about people that have never really been outside of their country a lot of the time. That These people were born and bred in the UK and a lot of them never left. And now they're in this blistering heat in North Africa, dehydrated, burnt, uh, oil deposits in wells and, uh, and sandstorms, these lethal sandstorms that could kill you. It was quite something to mentally try to just get through the next day and the next day and the next day. It was, it was quite relentless. Was it daunting for you knowing how big of a success the first series was? Do you know what? That didn't really come into my head. I think because we had to wait so long for it and because I had such a wonderful time filming the first series, like Kel Spellman, Jonah Howard King, uh, Matthew Aubrey, who I did a lot of my work with in series one. Uh, Kel and Jonah, that they, they were back and, uh, and we added Ahad Razamir to the mix as well. And I just had such a great time filming it, both both series one and, and series two. So uh, when series two was 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 coming up and we we're about to start filming it, I was just really excited. I was just so excited. It'd been such a long time and I was so ready to get back into this character who I really enjoyed playing. And also to be able to, you know, do do like the action sequences again. I mean, that was so much fun. When you go into work that day, and don't get me wrong, as an actor, you, you love those big cathartic moments and you love those um, uh, scenes where you get to show a bit of emotional range or something like that. But I don't think anything beats turning up to work and they go, don't have any dialogue today. You're just running from here to there and we're going to blow the place up. That is really fun. What sort of training uh, is involved with that kind of thing? Do you get, do they, how do they prepare you to be blown up? not much no oh, there much. we are then and and that's probably a good thing particularly for this you know we were not you know they're battle hardened to 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 a point where they're used to this stuff now because we we're entering the second uh a year of world war ii but as i say these were very ordinary people and so i think not having too much training was probably a a good thing for this so that everything felt 
dangerous. And I think that that was actually good and hopefully comes across on screen. How does it compare doing a role like this uh, compared to, say, the, the, the comedy roles you've done, you know, the in-betweeners and, and all that kind of thing? It is different. In a weird way, I think comedy can sometimes be a bit more stressful. Even though you're there to make people laugh, there's a pressure on being funny and landing the joke. And as much as I absolutely enjoy both, and, and that's the thing I love about my job is the variety to be able to do something like this and then be able to go and do a comedy. I think that uh, drama, oddly to me, feels less pressurised at, at times. You know, I think that also one of the points in that is that a lot of comedies you do will have like a tenth of the budget of a drama so there's far more time restraints. So with a lot of dramas, particularly if they're a big uh, epic drama like what this is, and um, you know there's a lot of money behind it, you might be doing a page count of like five pages a day. And if you're on like a Marvel film or a James Bond or something, you're probably doing a page and a half a day or something. Whereas when you're doing these comedies, particularly things like The Inbetweeners and 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 well, not well, paint and Koji differently because it's studio audience. So you're doing the whole thing in one go. Um, but uh, but a lot of the comedies that I've done, you know, you could be doing anywhere from eight to fifteen pages in a day if it's a crazy day. So that that it is very different in in that respect in terms of the pressure to to get things right and get it done quickly. But in terms of my enjoyment of it, I love doing both. And and for me. The, the joy is not necessarily picking one or the other. The joy, is, the joy is being able to go from one to the other. It's probably an impossible question for you, but has there been a show kind of over the course of your career or a role that you've kind of really resonated with and just thought like that one is the one that I feel I smashed and, you know, that's that's been the perfect role for me? Because um... you've done so much variety is what I'm getting at. I, I do you know what I don't know I don't I don't maybe uh maybe it's it's too much of a British thing but to say like oh I smashed that role just feels wrong like yeah. you, can't, you can't say that it doesn't feel right to me also there's just that thing of like and I think most actors are the same I've heard stories about actors that you're like are some of the greatest actors of their generation that are like I won't watch myself like mm. I'll I'll sit down at the premiere and then as soon as the lights go down I'm on my hands and knees crawling out of the cinema um and I can sort of understand that, you know, uh, watching yourself is is kind of a painful thing because you're not what you're not watching yourself and being able to be objective and and take in the story completely. Anytime you're on screen, you're watching yourself. I mean, I remember watching a scene I did in a show years ago where I critiqued the back of my head. I, 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 and my wife was like, what are you talking about? Because I was like, oh, it looks like I'm smiling there because my cheeks look slightly raised. It's like, it's the back of your head. Like, what are you talking about? And so I think it's really hard to shut that off. I mean, I've got better with watching myself, but it's still not a, a pleasant experience. I think I like to just go do the job and hopefully hear that people like it or like me in it or whatever it is, but not necessarily have to actually watch it myself. Did you always know that you wanted to be an actor? Yeah, yeah. I, it's, I don't know if it's a strange thing because no, no one in my family is involved in the arts at all. Like my mum uh, worked at a, a, a university and before that she was working at a primary school in like the admin department. And um, 
my dad drives for a living. There was no kind of artistic uh, person in the family that you could look to and go, oh, I can get into the industry this way or, or this even seems like an attainable job. And yet I think I just always thought that this was for me. Uh, I can't quite explain that. I don't know why, um, but I never had like a plan B to, you know, I had nothing to fall back on. So as a kind of teenager and, and, and a young man growing up, I think you have a sort of amount of blind confidence and ambition that kind of just keeps pushing you forward, pushing you forward. You get rejected, you push forward. You don't get into drama school, you try again. You go to an audition, doesn't go your way, you go to the next one, like that kind of thing. And uh, I think that as I've grown up now, particularly with two young kids, I think you were a massive idiot. Like, what, like you're lucky that it's worked out. But ultimately, I wouldn't want my kids going into this industry without some kind of academic or, you know, more attainable job goal as, as, a, as, a, as a backup, really, because it's, it's a fickle industry and there's a lot of very, very talented people out there that haven't got the breaks. And again, it's nothing to do with a lack of talent. It'll be because it'll be because they they didn't look right or they were too tall or they were too short or you know all these silly things that are just not in your control so it's a very strange industry and I'm very fortunate to have achieved a lot of what I wanted to achieve. Did you ever have reservations about going into the acting industry because it's it can be notoriously difficult on whether that be you know your your mental health or say you didn't get a part it's very kind of you know fickle in that sense yeah i mean no but again that was down to probably a bit of uh, naivety i have more reservations about the ideas of my kids maybe wanting to do this job because particularly as you say the mental health aspect of it i think you know a lot of people see people acting like what an easy job that's lovely that's great and i would say yeah you're right it, when you're working it sort of it's an easy job and you get paid more than you should be to, to be an actor. There's plenty of actors that are massively overpaid. I think we all are really, unless you're doing like a kind of a, a small play somewhere. But the times when you're not working is when you're really struggling. It's when people are not seeing you is when your mental health can, can deteriorate. And, you know, you've had 10 auditions. None of them have gone your way. You don't know why. No one gives you any reason why you just get a no. And sometimes you don't even get a no. That can be uh, uh, difficult at times, especially when you are like me, having spent basically your entire life wanting this, wanting to do this and wanting to achieve things in this industry. And you just sort of hit a brick wall for a while and you don't know how to knock through it. Um, that That's the toughest moments. That's when this job is is really difficult when you're you're either not getting the auditions or even if you are getting the auditions and you're spending hours hours and hours working you you've got plans for the weekend and an audition comes in on a friday and you're like sorry kids or sorry to your your partner or whatever it is i can't do the thing i told you i'd do because i've now got prepared for this self-tape because it's in on monday and you spend hours and hours and hours doing it no one's paying you a penny for it you do it and you don't even get a thank you mm. you just do it 
and it's into the world and, and no one says anything about it. That's when this job can be uh, really difficult. On the other side of the coin, um, when you do a project that has such, uh, you know, people hold in such high regard, um, we, we touched on the in-betweeners there. It's a show that began in 2008 and people like myself who hold it with such high regard and keep going back and rewatching and rewatching and rewatching. Um, does that still surprise you that people love that show so much? Yeah, of course. That's madness. <laughs> like, <laughs> like we, I did the, I did the first series um, after doing an unpaid uh, play in a pub theatre where we'd be performing these emotional scenes in the pub, and the Champions League was on just through the doors. And we'd be in the middle of an emotional scene and then all of a sudden you just hear, because someone scored or something like that. Then I go on and do the first series of The Inbetweeners, first time I've really been paid to do TV work as an adult anyway. And um, and then we were like, well, that was really fun. That six weeks was great. Um, I hope I see you around one day. And then months later, we hear we're getting a second series. And then they we go on to get to a point where someone's like, oh, we want to do a movie of this. And we're looking at each other like, no one's going to want to see our faces on a massive screen. Are you crazy? Um, and it just all kept working out. It's And the fact that, that today it is still watched by young people, not just the, the, the kind of 30-year-olds that grew up with it, but people that are in their teens now is kind of mind-blowing. Why do you think people resonate with it so much? Do you think it is just, it's an experience that we all go through? Or like, I mean, if you bottled this magic formula, you know, all shows would incorporate it. But why do you think people love it? I don't know, man. Uh, It's just, um, sometimes things are just the right thing at the right time. And um, I guess the relatability that you touched on is, is there is, you know, we've seen so many kind of teen comedies and teen gross-out comedies that are American. And uh, and I grew up with those. I grew up with American Pie and Road Trip and, and all those kind of things. And I think for people to go, oh, it's not the jocks and the geeks. It's what my life was. And it's as a British teenager, that was me or that was my friends. And, you know, it so many relatable almost mundane and innocuous moments that between your friendship group are massive because something funny happened and yeah it just it just hit that note but but I don't think any of us working on it expected it to be as successful as it was or for it to still be something that people enjoy today if um you had a pound for every interviewer to ask you um whether you'd do more you'd probably be a very rich man um so um i'm going to ask you something different where do you think neil is now like i just wonder where do you think he'd be let's oh, theorize <laughs> i have no idea i mean I, I i don't know that's more of a question for ian and damon who who wrote the show um you know, they would have a far better idea than, than me of where they think Neil would end up. But I think the thing with Neil was that he seemed to sort of luck out a little mm. bit. Um, and so I wouldn't be surprised if he's got quite a well-paid job that maybe he's quite good at. Maybe he's quite personable. Maybe he um, 
is in some form. I mean, to be fair, we joked way back about him getting into like stock markets and banking and just being really lucky. But like these millionaires are leaving Neil with their money and they have no idea how much danger they're in. Um, but we joked about that uh, a while back. But yeah, I I don't know, man. I, I have no idea. We always end uh, these podcasts, Blake, with uh, two questions, uh, the first of which, knowing what you know now, what advice would you give your younger self? Do you know what? It's the same advice I'd give myself today. Uh, and I wish I would listen to myself more. But it's just stop worrying. I mean, I know it's, it's a bit of a cliche. And there's that great... Um, that uh, everyone's free to wear sunscreen song uh, that Baz Luhrmann did, that the lyrics are actually written by a woman called, uh, I think it's Mary Schmick, who did like a um, mock, um, uh, is it not congressional address? What's, what's the where, where the end of the graduation um, commencement address? Like yeah. something like, I, I, can't, I can't remember what it's called. I'm probably m- mixing that up with some kind of political thing. But um, uh, she uh, she wrote this kind of mock thing. And one of the lines in it was, don't worry so much about the future or worry, but know that worrying is as uh, useful as solving an algebra equation by chewing bubblegum. It's, uh, it's a lovely quote because worrying is just part of being human. I wish I did it less and maybe didn't overthink things as much as I do, but equally, you can't not worry. I think the trick is maybe to go, I'm worried, but this worry isn't actually doing me any good. So let me try and put my energies into something a little bit more practical because the worrying will do nothing. Acting on the worry might do something, but the, the worrying will do nothing. So trying to worry less is is a, a great piece of advice for 15-year-old me and 30-year-old me. No, I think it's so funny. I actually interviewed um, another actor to um Catherine Stewart a Welsh actress this morning and um she quoted that exact song no <laughs> what are the chances that's yeah. bizarre what quote did she give she used that exact quote no it was just like oh my no. god that, that's why I was like when I was just like I mean it works you know what I mean yeah no I I guess it's but there's so many great lines in that song we've actually in our in our kitchen we've actually got the lyrics kind of printed out on these things and you know you for every day you look at one and you know the race is long but in the end it's only with yourself like that 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 kind of um of stuff do something every day that scares you I mean all these really lovely um lovely lovely quotes I mean it's such a beautiful song I think if you ever need a little pick me up or to put life into perspective or anything like that throwing throwing on Baz Luhrmann's everyone's free to wear sunscreen is a great way to do that particularly on a nice sunny day and uh, just finally Blake what would you like to see happen next whether that be in your career or in your life just in general what would you like to see happen next oh god um what would I like to see happen next (laughs) just in life um well, look, I'm a dad, so I just, I just, it's a lame answer, but I just want my kids to be happy, healthy, and, you know, I want to see them put the effort in to get the things that they want. You know, I think it's really important. You know, you want your kids to achieve, but you don't want anything to be too gifted to them. You want them to have um, the strength, the courage, and the kind of mental fortitude to overcome obstacles, do that. So that, that's that's the thing. Well, once you're once you're a parent, I think a lot of your answers become a bit boring because you really and truly a lot of your 
your worries or your focus or anything like that is all down to are they doing okay? Are they getting what they need and stuff like that? Not boring, inspiring. Go with inspiring, not boring. Yeah. I think it's inspiring. <laughs> I don't know how many people are going to be inspired <laughs> by me, but we'll see. Um, Bored by it rather than inspired by it, probably. Blake, I cannot wait to watch World on Fire season two. Um, thank you so much for having a chat with me today. Uh, and also thank you for so many happy memories watching the Inbetweeners when I was younger because I loved the show. Um, but from all of us at Wales Online, Diachon Vau, thank you very much. Thank you very much, mate. Cheers. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of In the Spotlight. For more TV and showbiz news, subscribe to our newsletter on walesonline.co.uk. Listener.